Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Jesse Skiles. We're at Way Down Wines in Portland. That's January 28th, 2021. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jesse. We appreciate this. It's my pleasure. Uh, first question, why wine? Um, kind of uh, n- never meant to do wine, ever. ever. <laughs> I was like, um, I, you know, grow, I grew up here. I was born in Eugene and grew up in Portland. And um, wine was always around. Like when I was a kid, like we'd go, my dad was like a member at Edelsheim, um, Patty Green, a little bit eerie, like a lot of like the second, first and late first, second generation wineries in the 80s. And uh, so I got to know it then, like I would, when I was in high school, like drive him out to like wine tasting and stuff for first pickups. Um, so he was always around that. Like he was um, friends with Kevin and Carla Chambers in, uh, when he was in college, which is how he got into wine. And so just was kind of around it, but it was never, it was something there, but it was never a thing where I was like, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. just, that's a thing that's in Oregon. And uh, I had an uncle that was in wine who went to uh, Oregon State and um, worked uh, with Bruce Beal, planting a lot of the first vineyards like in the Eugene area, in Roseburg area, like they planted a bunch of stuff in the early 80s. And he had a small vineyard in Kings Valley, and we'd just go down there and hang out. Um, But nothing more than that, nothing more than that at all. And uh, my objective in life was to be a cook and to like do fine dining, like tasting menu kind of cooking and uh, like started cooking out of high school and went to my first like real cooking job at a restaurant was at a wine bar called 750 ML, uh, which was in the Pearl District. And my first day there uh, was the day that uh, Jimmy Brooks passed away. And we catered his, we did, like, I'm sure there were other people doing it, but we did a bunch of food for his funeral uh, like the week after. Um, but it was, it was kind of a crazy time to jump into a first day of work. And I got to know some, just some random wine people through the wine bar. It was like there weren't that many wine bars in Portland at the time. And I wasn't that old. I think it was like 1920. And uh, yeah, it was an interesting, it was like getting to know the industry a little more in a, in a strange way. Mm-hmm. And then after 750 closed, I was there for like a year. It closed and I decided to go to culinary school uh, out at the CIA in New York. And uh, they had a really good wines program out there. It was very fun. Um, the two uh, wines professors were like classic. I think one of them, maybe Colpan had his master's wine. I don't remember, is that Steve Colpan? I think he had his master's wine. They were both, they were both very intelligent, very like classically trained wine guys. And it was like at 20, it was a really cool resource because it's like one of the few places where you can do that in, 
mm -hmm. or at the time, it was one of the few places you could do that as a minor, mm -hmm. uh, taste and understand wine. And on my externship, you do like a internship away from the school after a year. I ended up at the herb farm up in Seattle, Washington, or in Woodenville. And, you know, wine was a huge focus there. Huge focus. Like, we had a great psalm team. Um, we were always, like, Bob Betts would teach us classes. And, like, the cool thing there is they involved all of the staff, the kitchen, dishwasher, everyone got to go to do these wine classes that we did like every other week or every, it was, I think it was every other week. And um, so that was, that was just kind of learning more and learning more while not focusing on it. It was just kind of like a byproduct of whatever situation I was in and um, kind of started to get more into like drinking and thinking about wine then which um, just through those environments, it was kind of like uh, not, not never something I had been like, you know, it was like, oh, this is fun, tastes good. It's, I know these people like, I mean, I'll never forget the first time I met like Patty Green with my dad, just like this really amazing lady. Mm -hmm. and, um, just, but that was just, just like a happenstance. It wasn't anything. Mm -hmm. And then at the herb farm, I met, um, became really good friends with uh, the psalm there, this guy, Mark Dumez, who had worked in New York, uh, Felidia, and all these other great Italian wine restaurants. And we really started hanging out a lot. Like, we went to Napa for a week and just visited a bunch of wineries. And, um, and that, was, that was pretty fun. Like, I think I tried it was like the first release of Scholian Project. Like I had never had a orange wine really until that point and trying that stuff. And a lot of the early, like um, we met with uh, Dave Finney who went on to start Prisoner mm -hmm. and that was his first year of Prisoner. Uh, so we were just at like a custom crush cellar with his stacks of like, I don't know, 30 barrels of Prisoner for the next year. Uh, just tasting through with him. That was pretty, that was pretty, Never, you know, never expect that guy would become like one of the biggest names in wine. Um, and like, you know, just Mark kind of got me more into Northwest wines, for sure. Like we went to Esquin, I think it was like 21. And he's like, I was like, dude, I want to get a case of wine. He's like, we'll get this, get this, get this, try this, try this, try to get a base of what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and then we'd go through and like taste just taste like pretty much every other day after service. And then he was like, you know, really into like the wines of like Italy, like he had gone to Italy and worked in, uh, in Tuscany and, and he got me like really into some of those wines and, uh, and definitely how they worked with food. Like the whole time, like food was still, I had still at this point, no intent of ever doing anything in wine. Um, and then uh, I went back to culinary school, finished school, and then came back to Portland. Didn't really know what to do. <laughs> uh, but one of my buddies was uh, um, uh, this Chef Tommy Habits had a spot for me at Meriwether's, and so I went there and cooked with him. And we did a bunch of like wine events there. Just got more, you know, like John Paul with John Paul Cameron, and mm -hmm. got to know him a little bit through that and 
and uh, like I ended up taking over the, like the chef job temporarily at Mary Weathers when he left, and I was hoping to go work in Italy at a three-star restaurant at Calendre, but the um, my visa stuff fell through and wasn't happening. And my buddy was working at Onro, or my, my buddy's sister was working at Onro. And um, he was like, hey, you wanna go cater this event? They had some, some, uh, some, I don't know, they had a really good food program for like people in the industry and the staff. And so we did this lunch, we went out there and did this lunch. I don't, I think it was their Chicago distributor or something like that was the first event. And I was like, it's working on trying to maybe open a restaurant at the time, and then the recession hit. So that didn't happen, and just went out and cooked at Onro. Didn't think anything of it. It was just like an odd job. Like I'd done lots of catering and stuff, and um, it was great. Like the community, we had a lot of blast. We were only there for two days, and uh, just got to know all the staff. And um, at the end, David was like, hey, do you want to be our chef, private chef? And uh, David, David O'Reilly, mm -hmm. owner. And uh, I was like, I don't have anything going on. Let me think about it. <laughs> like, I really just had, I was going to take the summer off and figure out what to do with my life. And, um, and is I'd been working a little bit at Guilt Club, but it was, um, which is like the chicken, uh, or the chicken restaurant, <laughs> like the chicken name place from Portland. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't like, it was great. Like I had worked with Jamie at 750 ML back in the day. And so, you know, it was still very fun, like community and friends, but it was, it was a stressful job because we served full menu till midnight. It's like, this isn't what I want to do with, I get home at like 2.30 every morning. Uh, so I was like, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it. And um, started cooking out there for their staff and their visitors and, Got to meet a lot of amazing people um, doing that. And I thought it would just be like three months. Mm -hmm. And I'd like finish summer, finish harvest with them, and then just go back to restaurants. And uh, I was there for five years almost, like just under five years. And um, started getting more involved in the cellar uh, just because like I'd cook lunch and be really bored. <laughs> like you'd see people working, and it's like, I want to. You know, instead of just driving back from the valley to Portland, they're like, oh, try to be more involved in this. And uh, there's a great crew, a really great crew uh, at the time. It was very fun, like a very tight knit. Because um, Owen Rose, it, it was busy at that time. It was like peak, peak Owen Rose. They were cranking it out. And um, so there's always opportunities to do stuff, help bottling, help topping, help in the lab, help clean stuff, help clean the floors, fix, you know, just whatever, whatever they needed. And it was, um, it was something different, something fun. And uh, I think it was like after the end, towards the end of the summer, they had been there about five months, David's like, they had something unusual at the time where they let anyone on staff make wine. And um, which in 08 was quite unusual for Oregon. It's much more common now. Um, but I think there was like four of us on site who had our own small labels. And, um, 
and, and David was like, you should make wine. I was like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know anything about this. Um, and I kind of talked it over with my folks. And they're like, I don't know, it could be a good opportunity. It could be something fun. And we were still, I was still working on opening a restaurant. So I was like, you know, nothing else. I'll just make some, a little bit of wine and can have it as like a glass pour or something at the restaurant. Mm -hmm. Just be something fun to have. And uh, just started, started doing it, that harvest. And I uh, thought a lot about what, what I wanted to make. Because um, Pinot is like, probably, you know, I knew more about making Pinot Noir just from being around the valley and knew more about what I liked in Pinot Noir. But at the same time, there are so many people I really loved what they were doing that I don't think I could even compete mm -hmm. with what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, like the producers I liked, I was, there was no point. Mm -hmm. Like, I think they're already very, very good. And I, at the time, knew almost nothing. <laughs> like, other than like what I'd read and what I'd worked on at Own Row. And um, like, one of the things, um, we had a, travel a fair amount through school and earlier in life to like to France and Italy and um, one of the, my favorite places was like the Rhone um, just like the food just from a food aspect like the Rhone is like the birthplace of uh, gastronomy and haute cuisine um, like La Pyramide like the birthplace of, of fine dining like how we think of it mm -hmm. is in the Rhone it's um, so I was like, you know, like, and I kind of liked what they did with Syrah in food pairing. And I was like, yeah, like, in Syrah in France, in, in Cote Roti, is not the same as Syrah in the Northwest, or definitely wasn't at the time, where, like, Napa was kind of the model mm -hmm. for Syrah in the Northwest, like, really big, bombastic, juicy wines. And um, I was like, I don't know, try, try to make some Syrah that was, like, food friendly. Like that might be the one thing. And uh, yeah, David really helped me get some fruit. I think I bought some fruit from him the first year and then another little vineyard down in the Umqua. Um, just a couple tons, like two tons of each and then a ton of Viognier to do uh, uh, like a Cote Roti style blend. And that was, that was, that was it. And like the cellar crew really held my hand. Um, this great guy, Aaron Berlin, who was the cellar master, who used to have his own label, Merriman. Uh, he was really like my mentor through all this. But it was a, a tight crew. Everyone helped everyone. It was very like, we're all working on everything all the time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was how it started. <laughs> and that's just, you know, no idea, no clue about anything involved with it, not the compliance I didn't have any idea what I was getting into there. <laughs> um, but it was, it was cool. It was, it was a very fun, very fun time. Um, and just got to meet like, meet a lot of people in the industry. Uh, I think 08 was a pretty changing year in the Oregon wine industry. Like uh, you look at the producers who started in 08, there's a lot of like, I don't know, like the third or fourth wave of people. People had worked making Pinot Noir for other people who finally like 
had made enough money or had a connection to start making their own wine. And a lot of vineyards came online mm-hmm. in 08 too. Mm-hmm. So it was just, it was really cool to be part of that early, like just community. It was still pretty small. Like we hadn't seen like the, that was probably the start of the expansion. And mm-hmm. so it was, it was a much smaller industry mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, just kind of a weird, weird, <laughs> weird thing to think about now. You talked about like not really knowing anything about the process. I'm curious if you remember from the first year or the first couple of years of, of making wine. What were the what, what surprised you about it? What 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 was the process like for you learning how to make your own wine? Um, it was it was you know I, fermentation is the same in food. It's sacred. You know, servicier is is pretty much 95% of all the fermentation in food. So I knew a little bit about that just from doing like culinary fermentations. Um, And the processes are pretty, pretty similar in some ways. Like racking is kind of like straining chicken stock. I mean, it's like the techniques are the same in some ways, but like the sanitation is completely different. So that was a big learning curve, learning about how to actually like sanitize things. And just like the attention to detail and cleanliness was a big, that was a big learning curve. Um, learning how you ferment 2,000 pounds of fruit. <laughs> this is like how you handle this thing. How, and luckily, you know, we had all the equipment. We had like, I was just one fermenter out of 1,000 mm-hmm. or something there. Mm-hmm. So it was like, and I was already been working in the cellar like through that, like by the time I picked my fruit, we were almost done with harvest. So I'd already, already processed, helped process 800 tons of fruit at that point. Like they were very busy. Like I think we worked with like 30 different varietals, 40 different varietals in a given year from vineyards all over the Northwest. So it was, it was a very quick, like eye-opening start to it. And uh, it was a unique opportunity where I could work with someone else any day, mm-hmm. like after I cook lunch, go down and work in the lab for a day, or go pull samples, or go start inoculations, or you know help rack wine for bottling because we were bottling during harvest too. It was so busy; we were just constantly going. Um, so that was like I never really had a chance to stop and think much about it <laughs> during the time because we were so busy, and it was just like uh, you know the hardest things for me were figuring out how to work with the TTB and how to register and how to (laughs) figure out just the bare like minimums of owning a business (laughs) (laughs) or starting a business it was um while also just working like 80 hours a week Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. tell me me about that part of it was it when you made your first wine that year was it immediately like commercial like did you have did you immediately go commercial or was it just kind of an experiment it was originally i didn't know like i didn't know anything about anything there i guess like somewhat lucky to like very lucky to be at own road david's got a great sense of packaging a great sense of branding um and um i'd say i definitely say like some of that stuff just like the thought of how to present something um, was definitely like it was there, and we were like, for you know, everyone was involved in, you know, in some form in those decisions. Like mm-hmm. when we would come up with a new label, it was like it was very 
community open source like kind of development mm -hmm. on things, which I think is pretty unusual mm -hmm. um, for something that size. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like I like the first one I released it was uh, the VNA and I released it like in March of 2009, and I just kind of cold called some people like. I had a couple friends who were buyers, and I was like, who should I talk to? What do I do now? <laughs> and they're like, you should talk to these people. And I was pretty lucky at Owner, they also had uh, their own distribution kind of delivery set up for them and some other small wineries. And so I just kind of jumped right in there. And so I could just go do sales like one day a week, and then they would deliver it. Because otherwise I could not, couldn't have done it early on. Hmm. like to do deliveries and yeah sure so that was yeah and then just kind of started and there's a really cool event in um paso robles called hospice to rome that they used to do biannually i'm not sure if they still do it biannually anymore um they closed for a couple of years um uh, went down there in 2009 in the summer and uh or in the spring and went to uh, a wine dinner. And Hospice Rhone is pretty cool. It's like all, at the time, it was all the Rhone producers from around the world came. Like Shav, ev everyone mm -hmm. pretty much came, like a lot of the big guys. And a lot of importers, and we just poured one day. And um, just poured two wines, so we we're kind of an outlier. Like everyone else was pouring like their whole portfolio inside our two little wines. <laughs> but I just wanted to go and hang out and see what people were doing. And uh, got to meet, I went to like this dinner. Um, I can't remember, what's the name of the, Chateau Saint Jean and Chateau Neuf de Pop. They make like Duex Machina. And uh, went to their dinner and ended up sitting next to this guy, uh, Peter Weigand, who was, uh, I didn't know who he was, but we just started talking. And, and uh, turns out he's like an importer and was their importer for, uh, for St. John. And uh, we were just like, talking, having a good time. And uh, turns out like the next day he got uh, let go from them. And uh, he was like, hey, you, I'm starting a distributor in New York. Um, you know, work with us. He like tasted the wines and was like, I was like, I don't know, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we just started, it was like our first release and I think we sent most of it to New York. Like they took like half of what we did and um, most of the rest went to uh, Sterling Whitted, was a buyer at Whole Foods mm -hmm. in the Pearl at mm -hmm. the time. And he'd worked at I don't know if he was there, but he was out there that year. He'd worked there over the years during harvest. And uh, they took the, pretty much the rest of it at Whole Foods. And um, it's like, well, I didn't, I don't know. This <laughs> is kind of a, yeah, I just started going from there. Just like every year, just making a little more wine and trying to think at that point more about what to do with Syrah and what, what I could do, what I could learn, what I could so from the start, you were you were pretty much. I mean, once you were in it, you were in it. There was not there was not a lot of thinking about. Oh, you just kind of were in it. Tell me about yeah. tell me about the sort of the appeal to you uh, of making wine, and about sort of the initial reaction to the wines you you, you did put out there. 
Um, I think we're, uh, the appeal to it, uh, it was fun. It was just something completely different. And um, it was just, it was just fun. It was really like, and again, it was like, I, did, I was so young. I think I was 23, 20, 22, 23. So it was like not, I didn't have any other stuff going on in life. So it was just very like, I'll try this. Let's see what happens there. And, um, and it was, um, it was just like, like got to meet, like made some like very good close friends now, like uh, Barnaby from Teutonic. Like we met like that first year and we just started going like, you know, on like, just like bouncing. There was like a lot of ideas bouncing. Like I really wanted to do, like the one thing I knew early on, like I just, the one thing I wanted to learn about was um, like uh, native fermentation using like natural yeast and going that route, not from like the natural wine prospect, but that was the thing that interested me most from like the, the food aspect of it was doing spontaneous fermentations. Um, mm. And the ones I really liked here in Oregon, like Erie, Patty Green, um, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of those ones were, I knew they were all, like Patty had always talked about native yeast and how they're like the floor of the cellar really, you know, was, was a key part of what they did. And um, yeah, that's so just like learning about things was really fun. Really fun to try new things and just see what happened. Just and what was the reaction to, the, to the initial wine? Um, to my, my thoughts on it or? Uh, sort of, I was thinking consumer reaction, uh, oh, but your thoughts as well. Yeah, so like 08 was pretty lucky. 08 was a really good vintage. <laughs> like, oh, like to start with fruit in 08, which is, I think, I don't think we've had another year as forgiving is 08, where it's like just picking, you could go out to a vineyard and be like, okay, this needs two weeks or whatever till it's ripe. And then you just go pick it in two weeks. There were no challenges. Um, so the fruit started out with like, you know, really pure fruit flavors in 08, and the wines have actually aged well for, I mean, it's a, it's a nice vintage. Mm -hmm. That's Oregon and Washington, it was very nice across the board. And uh, so they turned out nice. And you know, it's great, like Aaron gave me some great advice. He's like, he's like, you know, you ever have like a really nice bag of weed? He's like, you wanna like play with it. He's like, it looks so good, you wanna play with it. He's like, but then you start playing with it and it turns into shake. And then all you have is a bag of shake. He's like, don't touch these things. That, like in reference to like barrels of wine. Mm -hmm. He's like, just mm -hmm. like, he would like see me like tasting and like thinking and He's like, just leave them, just chill, just, you know, without help like that, I probably would have screwed everything up and not, not done a good job. So, but the, yeah, the first one turned out pretty good. I think it's still like my favorite Viognier was our 08 Viognier. We did half stainless, half older French oak, and it was, it was very lovely, very good one. And uh, probably the best, maybe the best Viognier I've still made. <laughs> so, yeah. And you mentioned you found you found distribution fairly readily in Whole Foods and and, and in uh, New York. So, with the feedback from there, did you were you did you get an idea that you you'd made something that had an appeal? I started to think it might be something that could be and like at the time restaurants were like screwed. 
like post-recession was not a great time to even think about even at like 23 I was like oh this is a bad time to be in the restaurant industry and uh, that just seemed like something to try mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah so tell me about gr growing from there uh, you mentioned you you know dealing with all of the initial paperwork and the stuff like that that has to go on Tell me about picking a name and, and about sort of growing your business. Yeah, uh, the name was like almost completely accidental. It's kind of like the thing with like the paperwork. I had no idea. Like it happens so quick between when like, I like, was thinking like, okay, I could do this to when I had to get the TTB paperwork in and had to pick a brand name. <laughs> like, like, I think I spent two days thinking about what to call it. And that was just like the first silly thing. I was like, oh, that's kind of, oh, that's kind of unique. That's kind of a cool idea. And like Fospice means like a wrong path or a bad false path. And uh, it seemed to fit. It was very cheesy. It still is. And um, that was, uh, yeah, that's how I picked it. It was, there was no thought. I probably should have picked something that was a little easier to say. <laughs> but, but yeah, that was, that was all that went into it. There was mm -hmm. nothing nothing greater than it was like I was just sitting there like writing things out like just thinking about what to call it and that was that's what popped in and like early on like um I always wanted to be like I knew early on we weren't ever gonna have like vineyards probably or anything like that just financially it's never been an option because don't make a lot of money cooking and didn't have any savings really <laughs> going into it and uh, so I was like you know I want to treat it more like um, I always loved like the philosophy of like the Oregon craft brewers at the time who were just kind of like making whatever like this for small breweries so like just coming up with like fun fun names fun ideas like changing it up a lot mm -hmm. and I thought that's what I kind of want to do I want to come make different wines every year I learned out pretty quick that distributors don't really like that in the marketplace. In wine is not set up for that. They don't really like it when you <laughs> pull skews, <laughs> like completely change out wine. Um, so I find the balance between that now. But pretty early on, it was like that was what I wanted to do was just try making different things. And like, I think the first, the first like three years, we made like. 14 different wines that we've never made again, really. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was all. That was all pretty fun. Tell me about um, finding what you did want to make, finding finding grapes for it, and, and figuring out what the style you wanted to make, and kind of developing sort of the the, the style of the brand. Yeah. Um, so I always wanted the wines to not be super fruity. To try to get away. Like I, there's a lot of Washington wines I love that are super fruity, but. I think what makes Oregon so elegant is that the wines aren't like the ones with exceptions, like some places in the Yam Hill can be very like bubbly and fruity for Pinot Noir in warm years. Um, but for the most part, the wines are very elegant. Like the Dundee Hills are super pretty, super herbaceous and secondary. And I love those characteristics a lot in wine. In, in Washington, outside of like Cayuse and some of the other guys in Walla Walla, there 
it was much more bombastic, fruit forward, you know, cherry cola wines. I mean, it, it, like there's Classic Creek and other people that are a little more serious where the wines are aged and get secondary stuff, but I just really love those more savory notes and learning more about how oxygen in the fermentation, mm -hmm. like pre-oxidation of whites, uh, just um, really just talking to other winemakers and like um, like the decision to go all spontaneous fermentation. That was, I went to Walla Walla with Chad Stock like in 09 to look at some equipment for Anticatera. And we just talked the whole drive about like fermentation. And just he, like, he was like, you gotta try it. He's like, all you do is just put less sulfur in and just leave it. <laughs> and so I tried it and just really loved the results there. And, mm. and then the next step was just going more and more whole cluster every year, especially with Syrah. And not everyone loves like 100% whole cluster, but it's like, it's a thing I really, really enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was just, just learning how to, trying, trying to, you know, tame the heat in Washington, more or less. And looking, at the same time, we've worked in vineyards all over the state, looking for like, places like, just looking for different textures and flavors and seeing what the different regions provide. Tell me about some of the some of the things you're making now or that have have you made that a combination you're proud of or or a vintage you're proud of that kind of showcase sort of your 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 ideas like at the best. Um like I'd say like the two wines that I kind of they're like kind of our most unusual ones but the ones I like I dig the most. Um, one is our fish sauce, which is a sparkling um, muscat from the north-facing vineyard in the Eole Amity Hills. Um, that we just, it's, most of what we do is in like older French oak, but that's all stainless. Mm. And then we just press it, direct press in stainless, and then just do like the, like, Petnat or uh, Method Ancestral fermentation. We just bottle it and then disgorge it after a few months. And I really like that. Like the muscat is super floral, super like, it's, but it's also, I do give it some time on the leaves before disgorging. So it's got some weight and uh, it's got some savoriness. It's not over the top, it's not sweet. Mm. I, I really dig that one. And then the other one is our uh, pizza sauce, which is, it's like we've gone, it's stupid names. <laughs> um, just devolved Mem over the years. Memorable names. Yeah, we devolved over the years. <laughs> um, the pizza sauce is kind of something I started like when we moved to this winery in 2018, 19, 18, I don't know, a couple of years ago, we had like 40 barrels or so that we didn't know what to do with. It's like just, we had a lot of wine from a couple of big vintages. And uh, old cellar assistant Ty and I, um, we're like, we need to find a blend to get rid of some of the stuff, just to have space when we moved to here. And uh, we put this blend together, and it was a multi-vintage blend. And it was like, it was Pinot, Malbec, Syrah, and uh, Grenache, and a little bit of Vignet, and maybe some other randoms. Um, and it was delicious. It was just like, I think it was one of the more delicious wines and one of the more delicious reds uh, we'd ever blended. It was just very 
fruit forward, but also serious because it was like a five vintage blend. And um, I, think, I don't know, it's one of my, it's fun. It's just, it's not, it's not overly serious. It uh, goes well with food, it goes well with pizza. And we were just <laughs> eating pizza when we did it. So it was, hence the name. And uh, now we kind of do that. It's like one of my favorite things we do. We have like a base wine tank that I'll rack some in and then rack a little bit out and blend it with some other things. And so it's kind of the Solera, just base that started not on purpose, <laughs> but it's one of my favorite things that we get to do. And it's, it's also like, they're both, they're both, um, like it's 100% whole cluster, about half of it, about a quarter of it's carbonic, and the rest is traditional whole cluster. And it's no sulfur to bottling, just kind of lives and does its thing. <laughs> so it's kind of like a ever-changing blend. I don't, I don't know. It's... Tell me about finding a market for your wines. Obviously, you're, you, you, you talk, you're, you're, not, you're not doing straight Pinot Noirs or, or haven't happened for a little while. Uh, how have you found the marketplace for your wine? How have you found people who are interested and excited about what you're doing? And, and you mentioned sort of the consistency earlier in terms of you want to do a little bit of everything. Yeah. How have you found that balance between making what people are expecting and having the fun you want to have? Um, I think that it started at a weird time where that's what people were getting. Like the wine um, market changed so quickly from when I started in 08 till now. Um, like before, it was all very like, not, not classic, but it like, you know, like score driven thing, Robert Parker driven wines were a very big part of the market. Like uh, when I started in 08 and now I, I haven't heard someone talk about a score really in, the, in out in the market in a couple of years. Like it went from being like the focus to now people want to try things. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, um, for lack of a better word, millennials are getting more into wine and have way more interest than just like this one estate got 90 points or 94 points. And that's changed a lot. And I think we just, it, not tapped into that, it was just there. It was mm -hmm. just like, it worked out well. Like when people were first put something from Oregon that wasn't Pinot Noir on the list, or from the Northwest that wasn't, you know, that was a little bit unusual. Um, it was just, we were just there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we were like one of the few, like other than Owen Row, there was like just a couple other people making things that weren't Pinot mm -hmm. in the Valley. So that was really, just kind of walked in there a little bit, I guess. Um, and really seeing a lot of diversity, like especially in like New York and San Francisco, a few years ago, people started getting really into like naturally made wines, for a lack of a better term, um, which is kind of where we were leaning mm -hmm. at the time, mm -hmm. and starting to get into more and more. And um, and we like we met these guys in California called Revel Wine, or like our distributor there, Brooks, uh, Johan, Teutonic, like a lot of like-minded people um, in a place where people were really getting into that, like the Bay Area in particular, I think really drove a lot of what, um, what like the US wine 
market looks like now mm -hmm. in terms of like what people are drinking like yeah. and the boom of like what is the, like the overall natural wine world mm. um just kind of we're just there just through those guys and so an, an accidental trendsetter that's what that's what you are i wouldn't say we're no um but just accidental, yeah, yeah. Um, and like, I remember I was like down there with uh, one of the sales reps down there, um, this guy Wolfgang. Uh, we, I was like the first time I had a pet nap. Was in, in San Fran at a, a little wine bar down there. I was like, man, I don't know if people in Oregon are ready for this stuff. <laughs> like, I don't think we're there yet. And I mean, now look at it, like, that's like such a big, um, definitely on-premise, like mm -hmm. restaurants and like, that's a big part of what's, it's a big, big movement, I mm -hmm. guess, mm -hmm. for the wine industry to shift so quickly. Yeah. In like 10 years, it's completely changed. So we've talked about this a little bit already, but I'm curious if you could define your winemaking philosophy, what would you say is, is the, the philosophy that drives your, your wines? Um, minimalist, probably. It'd be like, we haven't used a new barrel and like that was the last barrel we bought. Is that the Demi Wee? And that was back in 2011 or 12. Um, so trying to do as little as possible. Like everything's, don't, I haven't used any additives in fermentation other than a little superfood occasionally for when we get VA in, I don't know, like five years, six years. We haven't added any sulfur barrels to bottling in the same amount of time. Um, everything's been much less, um, not, not a lot of racking, not a lot of just leaving things alone. Um, yeah, that's trying to do as little as possible has been, but in a good way, in like <laughs> thoughtful ways. Um, yeah, I'd say that's, that's probably what we've been doing. So tell me about the, you, you started 2008, 2009. Tell me about the growth to now. How, how, how much more are you making now and how has the business sort of evolved in that time? Yeah, we, so every year we kind of make a little bit more. I don't know, like, I think by the time I left in 2012, we were making like close to 2,000 cases of wine. So it was like pretty much doubling production every year till then. And then 2012 was our biggest year. I think we did like 65 tons or something like that, which was, we moved into our, we built a little cellar in Southeast Portland in a restaurant. And that was probably too much <laughs> for that year. It was chaos. Um, <laughs> and then we've gone down a little bit every year from then. Like I'd say like a good year, like I'd like to be making like 30 tons a year. We only made five this year with everything going on. But about that in a little bit yeah I'll come back to that don't worry <laughs> um and, and tell me about the you've been now part of the portland wine scene for a little while tell me about your sort of what you've seen as part of portland wine as it's grown up a bit and and sort of your 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 place in it yeah i think we arguably have like the most exciting urban wine scene probably in the united states um you know we like Portland used to be somewhat affordable to, for like 
warehouse space and stuff like that. And uh, I think that's why there was a lot of us that started around the same time in Portland, like I think in 2012. Um, when we moved, there was like 10 wineries in, in town. Um, and I think by the end of that year, there was probably 25. <laughs> like, I think a lot of us had the same idea was to, we were all living in Portland. A lot of like, a lot of us were living in Portland and driving down to like Newburgh or, you know, I made the decision just like, I was either going to move to Newburgh or move the winery to Portland. Like I couldn't do the commute anymore. Um, and that was, it, it was just cheaper in Portland. Mm -hmm. Like space was actually cheaper in Portland than down there. And housing too, surprisingly at the time I haven't, it's just weird. It seems like a long time ago. Yeah, it feels like, <laughs> yeah. Um, and now that's changed <laughs> quite a bit. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it was like uh, a very, and it's a very diverse, um, there's not a lot of overlap in what people were doing in Portland at the time and between like <clears throat> Hip Chicks and Groschow, us, Enzo started that year, Teutonic, hadn't quite moved to Portland, but they were more Portland-based because their winery was out like in the East Valley in Division. I mean, of course, we both kind of started the same year. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I think that really, we had, between like, I don't know, especially between like Division and Enzo and us, there was a lot of like community. Mm -hmm. A lot of us didn't have all the equipment and anything that we needed. So it was a lot of trading stuff and trading like, how are you handling this aspect of working in the city? How do you like, mm -hmm. even simple things like parking, <laughs> like where to park a trailer, where to, <laughs> how to deal with the water bureau, like that kind of stuff. And you know, like I think, and you look at the people who like Corey um, from Jackalope was working at Division. Um, Scott was there the first year from Bow and Arrow. Anne from Helotero was there. Um, so it was like a lot of people starting, especially there, um, who just made like a couple barrels of wine. James Ron, I think, mm -hmm. was there the year after. So it was just a cool to be part of that community and a lot of like, you know, all, a lot of help, mm -hmm. a lot of community help. Mm -hmm. And now I don't even know how many wineries we have in Portland, probably 75, 80, I guess. It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. You would know more probably. Than. So you mentioned you think it's the most exciting urban wine scene in, in, in America. What, what makes you say that? What makes it exciting? I think the, well, just, I mean, Washington's always had it with Woodenville. And that's its own little weird thing where it's like more, it's more like incubator style. There was like, you know, a couple storage mm -hmm. unit manufacturing places that all got turned into wineries. Where here it was like much more like integrated in the community. It wasn't like in, you know, like this industrial warehouse, which is funny. But now we're in an industrial, a small industrial warehouse. <laughs> um, but it was. Um, I think you just look at the diversity of what people are making and what interests are and styles and you know, approaches and backgrounds of the people that are here. Mm -hmm. It's it's a cool group. It's like, um, you know, just a hundred different stories of 
how people got into it and mm -hmm. what their approach is. And mm -hmm. It's always fun to see everyone uh, that's happened in a year, but <laughs> yeah. Eventually. Eventually, yeah, we'll get back to it. What about the city's reaction to the wine scene as it's grown? I, you know, I don't think they've done a great job. Like, I think um, the city of Portland I have this theory does not really care for small businesses all that much. They don't really try. My experience is that they're not, they don't have an olive branch out there. Um, so all this has happened like kind of in spite of what they, like the Water Bureau had no idea how to handle us when we first opened. Um, they were trying to classify us as a brewery or a bakery. It was like, well, we're neither of these things. <laughs> um, but these are all just little, you know, little things and they mm -hmm. like, they just didn't understand it really at first. Mm -hmm. And um, now they're a little more, they have a little more of like a concept of it. Mm -hmm. But I think the one guy was like, I just don't, it was like, one of like the permitters, or I don't remember who it was, but he was like, I just don't understand why a winery would be here. Like they didn't really like, they, and like they were, we were trying to put a tank in and they, they had like, or a big, a big fooder. We were trying to put a fooder in the old winery and they were like, well, you need to like have it latched down for earthquake thing. It needs to be bolted to this. It's like, it's just gonna sit there. This thing's not going anywhere. It's, <laughs> it'll fall a foot if there's an earthquake, we'll have bigger concerns. <laughs> But yeah, they didn't really know. They didn't really. Now I think they're a little more like mm. it's grown more. So mm. and like Travel Portland was always very great about it. They were like, you know. What about uh, you? Don't really have a don't really have a tasting room here in the in the most classic sense. Obviously, there's a space for tasting, but yeah. Without that kind of the kind of built-in advantage of a tasting space, how do you how do you sell wine to consumers? What's your, what's your connecting piece? Um, well, traditionally, like. Pretty much through the whole history of the winery, we've done very little like direct-to-consumer. Uh, when we had a restaurant, that was probably the closest we ever came um, to having that. Um, but we were—it was more just a restaurant. We were selling all kinds of wine, mm -hmm. like not just ours. I think we had a flight of ours. Um, but most of ours is. Most of our sales is through distribution, hmm. uh, through partners. Like, like we're in like ten states right now, hmm. so that's really how. And we have some, like we have like our online store, but that's not really like, that's not a tasting room in the valley or like. Right. Yeah. It's not. It's just a different thing. I think before COVID, I'd have like a couple people every week or every other week. But we're small. I mean, it's just me right now, so it's just sure. not an option. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, let's back up a second. I wanted to talk about food as well. Obviously, food yeah. remained a big part of your life. You mentioned the restaurants. So tell us about once you started making wine. Tell us about the the, the parallel track of food for you and what, how you continued in that industry as well. Yeah, um, we when uh, I got back, I really. I mean, restaurants are still like. I would love to cook <laughs> again. It's not really an option right now. I was <laughs> trying to get into cooking a little more um, right when the pandemic started, actually. Um, just not a great time. <laughs> again, not a great time to do that. Uh, the restaurant industry is taking an unfortunate blow here. Um, but like in 2012, we opened a place 
and uh, like I really wanted to make like a like a wine version of like a brew pub, almost. Um, so we had really like f wine friendly food was mm -hmm. what kind of our menu was focusing on, um, and uh, yeah, it was cool. It was uh, we had a great little a great team. It was very collaborative. Our, our menus, what we'd what we'd have, like we did a lot of game, a lot of wild foods, which went really well with a lot of the wines we were pouring. Mm -hmm. We had like uh, 40, 40 pretty like naturally focused wine list from around the world. And it was just really fun to play with food and wine like that, mm -hmm. and do like unusual pairings. Like for a while, we had like a, a mystery menu we do or it was like a four or five course like just random stuff we were cooking and pairing and like um, Jeff Veer uh, who now has his own little mm -hmm. wine empire uh, he was our like uh, wine director the winesman as you'd say and um, so it was fun to work with Jeff on that and uh, mm -hmm. really like we had we had some cooked some cool things and paired some cool things and had a lot of very fun ones on the list. Mm -hmm. It was neat to, as a like, from a, a, like a chef's point of view, it was really neat to taste every day. Like that was very eye-opening. Mm -hmm. Was to taste with our like wine reps mm -hmm. every day and just really get a grasp of what we were trying to do on the, the food side. Tell me about balancing that. Then you 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 have a growing wine business, and there was there was no balance. It was chaos. <laughs> it was chaos. Trying to do sales was the hardest. Mm -hmm. Like um, going to like other markets to do sales, and then coming back and jumping into restaurant service it was not. I didn't have a kid then, like so it just it was hard. Um, maybe too ambitious. Um, but we did it for like three, almost three years, mm -hmm. and um, it was it was a it was a great time. But we had a kid, so it was just no way to no way to keep going. Sure, sure. Do you prefer cooking or winemaking? Um, I prefer cooking, personally. Uh, I love um, like the brigade of a kitchen. I like that kind of like camaraderie and teamwork. I, I like at Onro, I like that was kind of like the same philosophy in the cellar. We had a big cellar team that was had a lot of that kind of elements to it. Uh, but like winemaking is kind of a slow and lonely process if you're a small winemaker. Like, mm -hmm. like we're lucky here at Way Down, like there's three of us here. There's Ian and, and Tyler. So it's like there is community here mm -hmm. where if it was just the winery it'd be kind of quiet and a lot of music a lot of podcasts um, and it, that's rewarding too it's just I love that community and kind of like collaborative kitchen mm -hmm. environment really mm -hmm. miss that a lot actually do you find that cooking and winemaking bring out like different parts of your skill set or different parts of your personality uh, they, they're both very rewarding in different ways like um, cooking on a line is like immediate gratification where you you know you get an order you cook it put it up someone enjoys it 
where winemaking like is years for that same kind of like I mean, you don't really like you occasionally get feedback on something years later after you've done it like someone will be like I got like a message about like a wine we did in 2015 they're like I, I didn't really like like this thing it's like okay <laughs> I'll you know try to plan for something four years in the future and they're just very different um, ways of thinking just mm -hmm. you know for wine it's like you make a decision now and you hear about the impact of it whether it's good or bad in like 10 years <laughs> so yeah you can't really send it back to the kitchen no no you i mean you can but it's it's a different level like shipping's involved and it's not just like well we'll put a new steak out for you like Have you found with with winemaking that you have? We talked about your philosophy earlier. You're minimalist, as you described yourself. Have you found that's changed at all since you started? You mentioned in the beginning, kind of wanting to overdo it. Yeah. Have you found yourself? Is it is it easier now for you to to trust the process? Is it easier for you to to, to trust the wine will turn out how you want it to? Um, sometimes there's always there's always a little bit of like, you know, nothing's guaranteed. In one, there's always there's so many different factors, so many inputs that um, influence the final one. Um, but for the most part, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, there's there's things that like compound, <laughs> where like one decision will change something, like like or like vintages will definitely, especially the way we're we're doing things, like with native fermentation, like if you have a vintage with high pH and we're doing a whole cluster, it can really cause a lot of, can cause some issues in the cellar later on. It's like, do we change our technique and philosophy based on that? Mm -hmm. It's just something I still think about. Because um, you don't necessarily, won't always have VA, or sometimes you will in those conditions. It's just trying to like, you know, and every year has been very different and challenging the last 10 years. <laughs> every year has been hottest to coldest or unusual mm -hmm. in some ways. We haven't had like, I guess 15, 16, 17 were pretty steady mm -hmm. um, and 18. But other than that, it's been kind of up and down. Mm -hmm. Is there a certain type of vintage that you prefer? Is there a certain amount of challenge you prefer or do you like the smooth and steady? Uh, cold. <laughs> cold any cold vintage we can get I'll take it like 2011 is probably my favorite vintage personally mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. why is that uh, it was cold the wine's beautiful um, there's not a ton of fruit they're very fresh they're aging very well um, but they took a long time to open up mm. like we were holding things in barrel for like three years to get them to open up and like if we'd bottled stuff earlier, they would just be like lean and not interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, talk about challenging years. 2020 obviously comes to mind. Yeah. So we've got a couple different challenges going on. Let's start with the pandemic and, and how it affected your work and, and, and business uh, and sort of what you see coming out of it, hopefully here soon. Yeah. Um, the pandemic, you know, it, it's it's been very unfair how hard it's hit restaurants mm. and i think that um our, we're, our government should just really have done more to help save independent restaurants um 
like, I don't know, made a lot of friends close early on. And I don't know, like a lot of our sales is at independent restaurants. Yeah. Like that's probably like 60% of our sales. Um, so that was one thing, but that's not like the, you know, like in 2008, there wasn't, there wasn't a pandemic and a recession. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, there wasn't like mass, you know, casualties mm -hmm. as a part of it. So it was a different uh, thing to navigate. Um, this one, like, it, it was really, really tough for me personally early on. Like, we've got kids, a two-year-old and a six-year-old. And, like, my wife works full-time in a different nine-to-five job. And I had to really, like, we weren't seeing my parents. We had no childcare at that point. So it was, like, balancing, trying to balance. And it all happened pretty quick. You know, it's like, okay, schools are closed. And now I just was like, had two kids <laughs> all day, every day, which is great. I love them. And it has been a lot of fun. But at the same time, it's like, there's something that's got to give there. There was like, not just like, what's if, like, our sales just pretty much took a nosedive mm -hmm. in March. I think we went like two months and didn't really sell anything. Other than like, we did some like online stuff that like, luckily like people were ordering wine online. It's like, mm -hmm. hey, we have this sale, you know, check this out. Um, and like all our distributors were rattled too, you know, when you lose, like as I remember talking to our Napa or California guys, you know, they went, one of our better accounts is a place called the Selena Door, which is like one of the busiest restaurants in San Francisco. And they went one week from doing thousands of covers to doing 30. And that's their biggest, probably their biggest account. Mm -hmm. And that's just not, <laughs> like, what do you do? There's no plan mm -hmm. uh, for that. And so it was, it was really interesting to navigate. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what, like, you know, luckily, like, Ian, you know, Ian runs this place. He was very supportive early on. Like, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll get through it. Like, and uh, luckily, like, things started to like level up. People started buying wine a little bit. It's weird to be in this business where you have to sell things. Like, I don't think, I'm not, probably not the best salesperson. <laughs> and, uh, but it's just, it's just a different challenge. Mm -hmm. It was a different, and we were at a place where we could just decide to make less wine mm -hmm. this year already. Just because I didn't have the bandwidth or the time mm -hmm. to do it we're really the focus to do it, mm -hmm. like, or the will, even. It was, uh, it was interesting. Did you consider, did you ever consider not making wine at all this year? Yeah, absolutely. I was going to not make anything. What changed your mind? Uh, one of our winery, one of our vineyard partners was like, you know, just make the wine and we can figure it out later. Like they wanted to have it go somewhere. And uh, it was for our like fish sauce, so it's like, it's one of the wines that we just can't keep in stock, mm -hmm. really. Like, can't disgorge it fast enough when we can. Um, so we did that. We just had a very small little harvest. One harvest, one day harvest, <laughs> which is the complete opposite of everything. And it was kind of nice after like 12 years or whatever to take a little like, mm -hmm. take a break. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I still don't know. I still don't know. 
I don't even know what this here is like. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about let's talk about that. You mentioned not really knowing what to do going in, and uh, obviously different kind of sales now, different kind of yeah. uh, different kind of distribution channels now. So, what do you see for this year and beyond? What, what are you sort of hoping for, and what are you sort of planning for? Um, the strange thing is we've had more outreach than ever before internationally. Like we started selling a little bit of wine to Japan, a little bit to Korea, some other like more international outreach than ever before, which is kind of it's kind of nice at the same time. Like <laughs> as things are like you know sales are dying in the United States, they have like you know places that handled the pandemic a little more responsibly. It's uh, really you know. <laughs> change their <laughs> change their uh, outlook on things and what they you know thinking about buying wines and you know I think um, distributors are, are very good at selling wine and they've found sales channels mm -hmm. again you know people are changing their habits again and going more retail so we just have to be able to do that shift mm -hmm. um, but like with wine nothing's very fast mm -hmm. so it's this So for your so as you look for the future for yourself, say in the next five-ish years, what what are you what are you hoping for? What 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 is what does the the brand look like, and what is what does your life look like? I have no idea. <laughs> no idea. I I would like to keep doing it. It's fun. It's you know, it is like a very financially burdensome business. There's a lot of cash cash going out mm -hmm. at certain times of the year. So it's cash flow is really. Like I wish I had a better idea of that one. <laughs> getting into it. <laughs> like hmm. it was uh, so in years like this where it's challenging, it's really like it's uh, it's it can be very stressful mm -hmm. with that. Like most people think, oh, wine's like you know it's fun, and there are some stressful things to it. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to keep doing it if it. I mean, I like this place. I like the situation here mm -hmm. like we're in a unique setting mm -hmm. uh, we got great community um, I think just I think just kind of like stopping for a second and figuring out the lay of the land mm -hmm. going forward is going to be key mm -hmm. like if we make a bad decision on bottling something that could really take time to sort out mm -hmm. So we've been pretty slow bottling and releasing things only like as we really need it. And um, yeah, there's things I'd love to make and love to do. I just don't know, like. Sure. Yeah, the risk. Sure. And obviously, you, you mentioned how hard restaurants have been hit by this, and you were you mentioned you were just kind of getting back into cooking at that time. So. Uh, what do you see for the future of, of the restaurant industry, and, and do you see yourself as a, as a part of it? I would love to be. I don't know what the future of the restaurant industry is. Like, I think the people who I, like the chef's table group in Portland, they are planning on opening more restaurants like in Lake Oswego. They're planning on, op people are actively trying to open places, like people who have a like, greater understanding of markets than I ever will. And I think that's a good sign. Like. And there hasn't, I mean, there's been a lot of places that have closed, but there hasn't been, I think a lot of people are just waiting, just put things on pause and waiting. Because, I mean, it could be like 
people love to eat out. People love to do those things. Mm -hmm. And like after 2008, people like things went crazy. The restaurant industry went crazy in Portland. That's probably the biggest boom. Post. Post mm -hmm. We see something like that again. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of cooks who want to open places. Um, uh, this, well, the market be there for it. Mm -hmm. That's. Mm -hmm. But I think we have so many talented chefs, especially like in the Northwest, that be a shame mm -hmm. <laughs> if if we lost what we built, like what the community built. Yeah. So we talked about the sort of the Portland wine scene earlier. I'm, I'm curious about your perspective on the Oregon wine industry in general. Obviously, you started out working in the Valley yeah. uh, in, a, in a very busy place. I'm sort of curious what your initial impressions were of the Oregon wine industry and, and some of the maybe key changes you've seen in your time in it. Yeah, I think um, it's been great. The evolution of the Oregon wine industry is great. I mean, we were pretty lucky to have really good you know, David Lett, we're pretty lucky to have him <laughs> starting things off. And, and Jason's really done a fantastic job uh, with Erie. Um, like, I think having people like that at the helm really um, changes a lot. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, like, I think people are making good decisions in what they're planting. I think the wineries that are open, opening, most of them have great purpose in what they're doing, what they want to do, like their ambitions and what they want to plant and what they want to, I mean, Pinot Noir is still king. I think it'd be great if, it will always be, um, but I think it'd be great to have even more diversity in what grapes we're working with here, which is happening, like at Johan and a lot of the vineyards, people are experimenting with new things that like, I mean, we've had Pinot here for like 54 years, something like that. 56? 50, yeah, 56, 54. Um, and we're still learning a lot about what does really well and what doesn't do really well. I think people have lots of different viewpoints on like which clones are good and, and that kind of stuff. Um, I like the old clones are my favorite, <laughs> favorites for Pinot. Uh, I think we'll just see more, more people trying things. The less risky it gets to plant something else other than Pinot Noir, we'll see more, like Trousseau has really started to happen in a big way and kind of more uncommon varietals and as people warm up to them mm -hmm. and then it's their like knowledge, people's, you know, people want to try these things on the, like overall. So I think that'll just kind of continue to expand Mm -hmm. more and more. Mm -hmm. And diversity of te technique. Like, you got people trying all sorts of, other wineries trying, you know, amphora and concrete and, mm -hmm. you know, getting away from just like the straightforward, like, wine fermenter barrel bottle. Like, it's trying new techniques. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's cool. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the future is cloudy enough right now, but I'm going to ask about the future of Oregon wine anyway. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about some of the changes you're seeing in the moment now. What do you think the industry looks like down the road? What, 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 what's coming? Maybe what are you looking forward to or what are you afraid of uh, in the future? Um, well, Oregon's so small as a, like, 
such a small piece of the United States, like wine scene. We're just, I think we're like, what, the fourth largest wine yeah, producer? Fifth largest now, apparently. Um, and Texas is growing, Virginia is growing. Um, but, you know, I, I, like, I think we have punched way above our weight in the international wine scene. The fact that we could even, like, ever sell wine in, like, out of the U.S. is <laughs> says something about, like, the overall brand of Oregon, mm -hmm. the Oregon wine industry. And I think part of that, we're going to get more corporate. I think we'll see more. It's already happening in the last couple of years. I think we'll get more corporate uh, influence. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think they'll um, just build, make the name recognition of like your average person on like the southeast sees a bottle of Oregon wine, they probably don't know much about it. Mm -hmm. And the more you get like the big groups involved, they really do a lot of promotion for that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think that's probably the future. When we have more like independent people coming in, there's a lot of young people moving here in the wine industry who mm -hmm. want to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, like who go to college for that, who weren't just working at sellers before and starting their thing with purpose, coming here with purpose to do mm -hmm. things, um, which is very different than how a lot of us, like I hadn't, I think I knew one person that I worked with that had an enology degree pretty much the entire time. Yeah. And there's, there's more, you know, that's a growing, aspect of the Oregon wine industry, which means we'll just have better wines overall. You talked earlier about some of the people who mentored you when you got started, and a, a wide list of interesting, of interesting names. I'm curious about your role in mentoring the next, the next people who are coming up, and if there, if, there are, if there are sort of words of wisdom or advice you have for people that you're giving them as they get into the industry. No, that's, that's funny. Um, I, yeah, it's weird. It's funny to think about that. Um, Not to put you on a pedestal. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, it was, it, I've, I've had more, you know, the, the bummers were so small. Like, we really can't have, it's never worked out. We like, it's really hard to have steady, like, seller help in the wine industry if you're like small you know it's so seasonal it's like it's so tough and even for us even having like a seller hand for harvest is is kind of a, a stretch most years um but it's been interesting talking to people about fermentation other winemakers other people interested about spontaneous fermentation and how to how to use it that's like one of my favorite things to to talk about mm -hmm. really is it's like it's just a different it gives you such different results it's like baking sourdough versus baking regular bread they're just kind of night and day in mm -hmm. ways they're almost different almost different things even though it's the same it's bread but they're almost like different wine is kind of that same same thought mm -hmm. And no, there's nothing wrong with either way. It's just thinking differently mm -hmm. about things. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know, mostly advice that, like people ask me about is how to operate with the city. <laughs> how did how do how did we do it? Mm-hmm. You know, how did like how to start a small winery and when you don't have a vineyard, like those are probably the most common questions I get are mm-hmm. like, how did you do it? Mm-hmm. Like that's and I just say try it but be it's expensive. <laughs> So just pretty good advice for get, getting in the industry it, in general. Yeah, yeah, any anything you're trying to start that's like very like if you open a restaurant, you better come with operating expenses for at least a year because if you don't, you're just shooting yourself in the foot before you even start. Um, do you have a favorite memory or moment so far in your in your winemaking or food career? Um, but my, my favorite, like wine, um, wine memory was, uh, in 2010, I went back to the Rhone and went to visit, uh, it was kind of random. We were there with my folks and, um, we had dinner at this little like place in Valence. Um, I can't remember the name of the restaurant and it was just like a little like town restaurant thing and the guy who was the psalm and only server in this restaurant his name was Serge and uh, we just started talking like he knew more about like coat roti and the northern Rhone than anybody I'd ever met like his wine list was out of, out of control crazy like for just this little place and uh, he's like actually I'm going to this like party later do you want to go like I, I just met you. I don't know. It's like oh, I'll get done around eleven. Let's go. And uh, we went to Cornos, and we drove like in this little like van. Like I'd never never met this guy. He spoke a little bit of English, and I speak a, just a little bit of French. And uh, he's like, let's go party with these winemaker guys. And uh, it was like a little biodynamic wine party tasting thing at like one in the morning in Cornos, which is not a big village. And uh, we ended up hanging with, the, with this guy, uh, Matthew Barre, who has a winery called Domaine de Coulet, who is like a, a biodynamic, um, I don't know, very, very fantastic producer. And he's like, he looks like a teddy bear. He has a wine that's like a teddy bear. And we're just hanging out at his cellar at like, till like four in the morning, um, eating like cured meat that they had like hanging in the cellar, tasting cornos, just with like, it was, it was, Something very fun and unusual, and like <laughs> I think I got back to the hotel at like six in the morning. <laughs> it was just like I don't know. That was probably my favorite. And he's like the guy who it was the first time I had really he really like helped me like understand whole cluster fermentation mm-hmm. as well. His wines are all whole cluster, and that and his Syrahs are incredible. So that was like that was probably my favorite wine moment. It's not even just a fun party, but also like actually helped with something you were yeah. going to do. Yeah, I learned so much from just going there and hanging out and like just drinking with these guys in a tiny village. That's awesome. I love it. That's all the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? I thought that I can. That sounds, that's all pretty. Excellent. Cool. Thank you so much for your time, for sharing your stories with us, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay, thank you. Thanks.
Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.